Welcome to the Tote the Note podcast hosted by Jim Rhodes, founder and head coach at the Octane Group. Join us while we dive into the questions that matter most to buy here, payer operators in the world of subprime auto finance. This episode is brought to you by our friends at NEO. And now, here's your host, Jim Rhodes. Hey friends, welcome. I'm Jim Rhodes. We're uh, here for another Tote the Note uh, podcast episode. This is another in the series of the hard questions that our friend uh, Brent Carmichael has been kind enough to join and add his expertise to the conversation. Today, we're taking on a big subject. We're uh, going to talk about why dealers and buy here, pay here fail. Okay, so we're gonna get, certainly going to get around talking about some specific things that we witnessed, some mechanical things or business model things that, uh, that we've seen. But I, I want to make sure first our listeners that uh, don't know Brent. Brent is uh, somebody who's been in the buy here, pay here business since 87. He had a long history and, and success with um, a big dealership group and then stepped into moderating with NCM. Um, and now, f- how many years with NCM? Uh, 15. It'll be 15, 15. Uh, October, November. Nice. And so Brent is a senior moderator and uh, consultant, and uh, he has, uh, he may be one of the few guys in the country that's more traveled and buy here, pay here than I am. He's been in more <laughs> states and more corners of the country doing this thing. And so he's seen a lot. And so it's part of the reason we want to bring him to these conversations. And so I wanted to start today, Brent, when we talk about why you've seen dealerships fail in buy here, pay here, we want to um, first kind of look at it from a perspective of, you know, kind of what are the common threads that you've seen? If you look at all the people you can think of that you've seen fail, are you seeing something emerge as sort of a common trait or common characteristic maybe with these folks? Uh, <clears throat> common between all of them. Fortunately, I haven't seen that many that have, yeah. have actually failed. I see quite a few that struggle. Um, one commonality I do see in ones that I that I've known that did actually fail that are no longer in business um, were ones that had no experience either, pretty much in the finance side of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, came into it more thinking it was a car dealership uh, mm-hmm. and not a finance company, and quite didn't understand that there was more to the business than just selling cars. Uh, that that would probably be. Not necessarily true for 100% of them, but I would say a majority of them uh, came at it with no background in the collection side of the business at all, uh, or didn't really understand that part of it. I would agree. That seems to be something I've seen as well. It's like, and there's also that, I mean, we understand the lack of knowledge of the, the, maybe the underwriting and the collection side of the business for people coming out of retail or franchise space. I also see that those folks tend to bring kind of a sales mentality. Uh, they sell, sell, sell. And if, if things aren't working, they just sell some more. They try to sell their way out of the problem, you know? And so I've seen that kind of be a common uh, thread and, and it's not necessarily failure. Sometimes it's just dealers struggling and, and getting out ahead of their skis, as I like to call it, you know, sometimes that can happen in our space, but we'll, we'll talk some more about that. I did want to share quickly my own story. And as, as I mentioned to you before we uh, started the, the broadcast here, that I, I want to share a little bit about my own story because it kind of gives perspective on you know, what happened with me, I opened a dealership in 05. We, we jumped out of the gates quite well. We did decent volume. We created positive cash flow. We paid down our debt pretty aggressively in 07. 
And then in somewhere in late 07, I tried to get in the retail business and I was influenced by some other dealers that I heard that were getting the, you know, doing some secondary finance and creating some nice gross profits over here. And I thought that's something I want to try. I want to create that, uh, you know, kind of have both, um, kind of both tools in my tool belt, if you will. And we just didn't do very well with that. We sunk quite a bit of money off of my buy here, payer operation into the retail business. And it was about 30 minutes from where the buy here, payer lot was. And we just kind of struggled, struggled. Finally, in the end, you know, we, we just end up uh, turning over the inventory, you know, basically like a lot of other dealers, my floor plan got called due in, in that 08, late 08 period. And we just sold off the inventory, settled up with that and got out of that business. But it hurt me because the money that I'd counted on, you know, put in that retail business, I couldn't put back in my buy here, payer business. So that's my, my own kind of quick version of the story. I would say, you know, looking back on that now, I can say, you know, I think had I stayed in my lane and buy here, pay here, I'd probably done a lot better. It's easy to say in retrospect at the time you, you feel like you're making, you know, a good decision, but I think it's, it's an example maybe where you take your eye off of the prize or kind of the, off of your, your business plan and you deviate a little bit. So, you know, it's, it's always appropriate to get good advice in those situations, but, you know, back to the, the conversation of the kind of the larger thing about why dealers fail you know, I see a lot of things I see. I always say, Brent, that I feel like we see dealers sometimes come into this space and they move too fast. And sometimes this is the same group of people that we're talking about. They come from a retail background. They get a little bit intoxicated by the gross profit that we enjoy, right? And buy here, pay. And they say, let's put more of that. Let's do more of that. Let's look how fat these, P these P&Ls are looking. You know, let's crank out a, a, a bunch of that. And, and they just, they, they end up, you know, having to pay day or you know, suffer the consequences for that one day. So are you seeing that as well? Yeah, and that's what I've mentioned, kind of the common thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that that is pretty much it. And again, I, I have a little direct experience with that to a certain extent myself. Uh, you had mentioned I was part of a, a large dealership group and, and we sold that business. Mm -hmm. um, at that time, it was, I think, 12 locations. We were 8,500 accounts, uh, a little over 60 million in portfolio to a publicly traded company. And... I stayed on about six months afterwards and found out that I was not ready. Their model at that time was to grow six or eight locations per year. Um, and we had never done more than I think two in our history, maybe three in one year, which stretched us really thin. And I just wasn't comfortable with that, with that growth strategy at that point. Um, call me lazy, call me fat and lazy, which I am. I'm okay with that. <laughs> you were um, one of the hardest working people in the industry. Decided so. to go ahead and just go, you know what? I, you know, I'm, I'm just not comfortable with that growth strategy. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately that, um, that deal fell apart about 18 months later, about 20 yeah. months later, yeah. they could not sustain the growth and had the infrastructure for a rapid growth. And they just never could get to that point. And then obviously, as, as most of us know, in buy here, pay here, we pay for our past sins. All of these cars that were sold initially, then, you know, corners were cut from an underwriting standpoint, because when you have to sell mm -hmm. 100 cars a month to make a model work, sometimes yeah. you can't do the basic blocking and tackling from a collection and underwriting standpoint. Yeah. And those past sins came back to haunt them and right. basically put them out of business. So uh, again, wasn't directly, fortunately involved in that, but have seen that on a large scale. So, right. it, you know, your great point about we get sales drunk. It's it's easy to sell cars and buy here, pay here. It really is. I know some right. people out there are going to disagree with that, uh, but it is pretty easy. I mean, you open up the door, put cars on the lot, you control who you sell to basically from mm -hmm. an underwriting standpoint. 
and they just don't have the foresight to understand that the decision we make today, we really don't know if it's a good decision for 18 months. Right. I mean, we really don't know for sure. I mean, there's some data out there, static pulling some other things that can help you decide, but yeah. you truly don't know. And I think that is the, um, the lack of foresight with dealers that either struggle or just flat out fail is they don't understand that, hey, you know, a decision made today, the ramifications aren't tomorrow. In a retail environment, they are, right? I can sell the car today. It'll be funded by somebody else. So they'll pay cash. So I get my money right now today, whether it be a good gross or a bad gross, that buy here, pay here, you're right. We book that, that good gross on the financial statement that looks good, but then we kind of forget there's a 36 or 42 month note that I've got to collect not only my cost of goods sold, but that, uh, but that grows back in and, and they don't see that or they do see it and maybe just not understand the impact of it. All right. I should take a moment to uh, let our viewers know that um, we, we try to keep these things about 30 to 40 minutes, you know, but I can just tell there's this, there's a lot of stuff to talk about here. So I'm just going to tell our folks that you know, grab a drink, get a comfortable chair. Cause there's, there's quite a bit of stuff to, to cover here. And uh, Brent's been kind enough to give the time. One thing you touched on there that I, I don't hear people talk about enough is this idea that when you get in a place where you have to sell, so whatever that motivation might be, what, whether that's to stay ahead of a, a line of credit, you know, a delinquency thing without trying to sell out, trying to sell that delinquency or stay to have a borrowing base or to, to hit a certain gross because of overhead or what, when you find yourself in a place where you have to sell buy here payer, that's a really, most of us should recognize that as a really uncomfortable place to be. You should probably find some help because that's a, that's a real dangerous recipe in my, in my mind. I completely agree. And what we're talking about here, the ones that struggle and fail is that they've realized it too late. Yeah. It's one yeah. of those that they look at and they go, okay, I haven't done it for one month, but maybe next month it'll be okay. And then next month I'm kind of close, but still don't hit it. And then, you know, three, four months down the road, and then it gets six months, seven months ago, wait a minute, we're just not there. And then they forget, they, well, I'm not going to say they forget, maybe they don't realize that if this is the new norm, then it's time to scale the business back. Mm -hmm. and, and they, either choose to or don't re recognize that they need to scale the business back to that new volume. And they just continue to think, well, next month will be better. Or next month will be better. And you've been associated with them. And I have too. the ones that are selling to outrun a line of credit. And obviously those are the ones that scare me the most mm -hmm. uh, because they will make decisions within their business that are detrimental regardless. Yeah. Um, adjusting of accounts or some other things that I have seen with dealers that have failed that you just look at them and go, Hey man, if it's gets to that point, hopefully my relationship with my lender would be a little bit better that we need to go to them and just say, look, I can't mm -hmm. maintain this. We need to. And a lot of the capital sources that I deal with, and I know you do as well. I feel would have a open mind when it came to something like that. If you went to him and just said, look, Jim, I cannot, maintain this volume it just won't work without sacrificing something down the road i think it's time we slow down if more of them did that we would have more of them in our industry right now than what we do that's for I sure absolutely agree i think what i what i've seen and you're you've seen more of this than i have but i would just say that in my own experience when when people find themselves in that place where they're up against their borrowing base and you know on a line of credit and they're having to sell to you know stay ahead of that or you know we got ineligible contracts because of delinquency or whatever when i see that happen i would say that ends badly more than it ends well 
which tells me if, if I'm a, somebody who's in that place right now, I think I would hope they would be able to go to their lender or their bank and say, I heard Brent and Jim say that this ends badly, you know, more than half the time. And so let's not listen to this in badly. Let's figure out a way to solve this problem and just get honest real quick. One quick story I got to tell you, I was working with a, a new dealer He's you know, young, he's got, uh, you know, barely 20 contracts on the books and he's looking to build his buy here, pay business. We were doing some cash flow modeling and I, I tested something that I heard, um, Lawrence Mead, you probably know Lawrence Mead. He won't mind me mentioning his name. He shared with me that Ken Shilson told him years ago at a conference, and you probably heard Ken say the same thing, is you, you want to go to your business model and double your charge-offs. Just forecast out 12 months and double your charge-offs in a period of time, and then ask yourself and look at the numbers. Am I still in business? Is my business still alive if I double my charge-offs? Well, we did that with the dealer recently, you know, in this modeling, and we just took typical kind of what I call drivers or assumptions, the same thing you would use in your modeling or, and doing a rolling 12 or whatever. So we're forecasting out the portfolio. And in, in their case, when we doubled the charge offs, they were still just fine. But when we moved them from a 50% advance on their line of credit to a 65% advance, they were underwater inside of 12 months. So I thought that was a, the best evidence that I could show on a single screen, change one number, yep. and you could see that that leverage, that that just that extra advance um, was enough to put the dealer underwater. And once you get underwater, it's so difficult to, to climb out of that hole, right? And, yeah, and you've seen them too, too many dealers that, well, I'll do this one time this month. Some sort of a corner will cut just one time to make sure everything works. And as you know, once you start down a path, sometimes it's not very easy to come back. So then it's got to be done every single month. And we do the same thing. We, we look at, we call it account attrition <clears throat> is what we look at. Again, goes back. I, I've learned a great deal from Ken early on in my career. Mm -hmm. still new to this day. You know, most of us have. <laughs> we, just, we just look at that and go, okay, well, look, let's just say that charge-offs do go up a little bit or even payoffs to a certain extent. And so okay. you're going to be losing 50 accounts a month. Currently, you're only selling 45. So yeah, five accounts doesn't sound like much, Brent. It really doesn't. But after 12 months, that's 60 accounts. Right. And at an average balance of $7,000. So you do the math. There's quite a bit of a portfolio that's gone or, or anything. Look at $400 per open account that you're collecting mm -hmm. on that 60 at $24,000. Now that becomes, again, do the simple math. That's $300,000 a year in cash flow. Mm -hmm. so, that's gone. So now I can't pay my interest payments or I can't pay all of my people. And it starts out with something as simple as just a five account reduction right. that if we don't fix that quick, and those are the things, again, somebody coming from a, and again, not necessarily saying everybody that's come from a finance background has always done well in this business, because that's not true either. Uh, but when you understand that that is the most important part of it, that the selling of the car and the pricing of the car, those are more the easy parts of it, mm -hmm. that the collecting and maintaining that portfolio is the toughest part. Those seem to to have a better future uh, than those that don't get that. Got it. So I think um, when we look at business models in buy here, pay here, they run the gamut. We've seen and you've seen lots of different business models work. Um, I always talk about, we spend a lot of time with our clients trying to figure out what, what's our target. Like, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to create positive cash flow? Are we trying to, you know, delay or defer, you know, positive cash flow and create some equity and, and, you know, grow that side. So there's different strategies, you know, it's kind of on those extremes, but then I'm just wondering what you see in your experience. If you got a new dealer in your 20 groups 
and you, you get a chance to look at their composite for the first time, what are some of the things that you see that are indicators of problems in a business model? Like things that would go send your alert flag up, you know, when you see numbers in a composite that what are the, some of the, the telltale signs of maybe some, uh, an actual flaw in a business model? Well, similar to what you kind of mentioned, one of the first things we do take a look at is the cash flow of the business period. Um, is it cash? And some of them don't, and we get that, but they have obviously capital sources available. But we want to see where that is. Um, and again, so we start taking a look at stuff. One of the first things we'll take a look at is that collected per open account and what is that as a percent of what their average monthly payment going out is. Um, and that can kind of lead you into 15 other ways could be a collection problem, could be an underwriting problem, could be who knows what. Right. Um, that's typically, you know, just take a look at here's how much money's coming in. Here's how much money's going out. Not necessarily net profit to a certain extent, because we know that can be sacrificed uh, depending on what the business model is. But just here's the income coming in. Here's what's going out. And where are we in that? But and again, you brought up a great point. When I'm working with somebody getting into the business in general, one of the first things that we talked about is what is your model going to be? Is it going to be an equity model or is it going to be a cash model? I kind of dumb it down and only give them two choices. Equity, meaning they've got all the money in the world. They want to be the next car mart, drive time, buy rider. Warren Buffett is getting into the business. Fine. That's one set of decisions that can be made. But if it's a cash model, which is the other choice, there's a finite amount of capital available. And again, it really narrows down what our choices can be. We can't run equity off of a cash model. A cash model is I've got $2 million to invest. That's going to set the number of vehicles I sell, the cost I'm going to sell them for, the risk I incur with those. If equity is the case, I can sell as many cars and as wild west as I want to sell them right. at that point, because I probably could outrun uh, some of the metric numbers in there keep me in covenants with my bank because I know I'm always going to be able to continue to grow the business. Right. So, yeah. The first thing I do take a look at is what kind of cash is the business generating? Again, not necessarily net profit. I do take a look at that, um, but I want to see what kind of regenerating. If we've got X dollars in portfolio, then we know we should be collecting, as you know, gosh, you've been around uh, for many years, you know, that's six to 8% of portfolio. If it's not generating that, what is the issue? Because we need to be there to be able to pay the bills and the cash flow. So that's typically where I'll start is there as a 30,000 foot. And if that looks good, then I'll start trying to find something wrong, so to speak. Because uh, unfortunately, I guess that's our roles as, as consultants is not necessary to always tell you what you're doing right, but also try to find those opportunities within your business uh, to make you a little bit better. Right. I think uh, two things I would uh, kind of bring together on that is one is this idea that I call it conversion rates. I'm sure people in the industry or, you know, analysts on Wall Street call it something else, but I'm really just talking about the rate at which the portfolio is converting to cash. Uh -huh. Right. So I'm just, that's why I call it a conversion rate. So I think I want to have the, for our listeners, you mentioned that six to 8% number. You want to share with them kind of what you're measuring there. What are the numbers that go into that? Well, that, that's basically the dollars collected as a percent of portfolio should be somewhere around six to 8%. So if you've got a, a $1 million portfolio, let's say, then 60 grand to 80 grand a month, I guess, would be what your collection dollars would be at that point. But are you um, counting you your principal and interest and probably repo recovery or what all you throwing all in? All dollars coming in should be somewhere in there. And the reason for the spread, obviously, if you're a growing business, 
it's right. going to be in that lower end, that 6%. If you're kind of a flat business, a mature business, something that's leveling out or maybe kind of receding a little bit, then it's going to be around 8%. Again, and I just want to, again, caveat with that, guys, that that's yeah. not a, I wouldn't say that's a benchmark. And if you're not there, then you're doing something wrong, but it's just kind of a good parameter to start. Um, if you are a, you know, a low monthly payment with a longer term, you may not ever be able to get to that 6% range, even as a mature business, mm-hmm. um, or you may be at 9% now and think that, you know, everything is really great or may be concerned. So it's just, again, kind of a quick barometer to look, we need to be in that range. And if we're not, then again, we kind of spread out and start looking at four or five, 10 other areas that might lead to that. Right. And so I think that's why you and I both go first to cash flow and, and portfolio conversion, because, you know, this is not really at the end of the day, it's not a sales business, as you said. So with some of our clients, we will kind of, and I remember in my own exaggerated example, I would sometimes remember with my own dealership, which was about 30 minutes from my home. So I'm working with the managers at a distance and, and, uh, and I've worked sometimes with dealers that were in a different state. Like I would manage a dealership out of state point of being that you would say, well, look, if, if the, if our delinquency is a problem, if we can't manage our portfolio of accounts, we can't get that under control, then we don't have any business putting any more contracts in that portfolio. Like you're just, you're just piling stuff on top of something's not working. And so until you get that smoothed out uh, and you make sure that's yielding, you know, what it's supposed to yield, then, um, then it's just, you know, we, we can't sell our way out of that situation. We don't solve that problem by selling more cars. You know, we, we probably compound the problem. Right. So, so I, that's why we go there first. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that, that's a great point. It, it just adds to it. And again, it may look okay for a while, <clears throat> excuse me, but kind of going back to my personal experience, if it ever slows down, it gets ugly in a real hurry. This isn't, it, it doesn't come back slowly. If it, if it slows down the caboose, and I'm not really a cliche guy, but that caboose will run over the front end of that train in a real hurry. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, once it starts, it's usually too late. Yeah. I'll, I, you can leave the cliches to me. I got all those today. So <laughs> no, we got, uh, I, I, I have, we have lots of phrases that I, I find myself reusing, but I want to share that, you know, this morning uh, we're recording this in the middle of August. And just this morning on Friday, we had uh, um, in our morning show, we have a live morning show. And then we had uh, Jeff Watson out of Utah and Luke Godwin, who are the, the co-hosts of the, uh, the independent dealer podcast. If, if, if you've been under a rock and you haven't found that, if, you, if you're interested in buy here, pay here, an independent retail dealer, you need to go find the independent dealer podcast. But those, those guys were on, and we talked a little bit about some of these things at the end of our uh, time together, we just kind of touched on that. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was the, the echo chamber thing. Like if you're a dealer who's out there doing your own thing and maybe you're getting bad advice, another thing that was shared on Facebook was kind of this idea that it's a little like the people who, are cheating in school or whatever they're, they're struggling in school and they're, they're cheating off of somebody who they're doing it wrong too. You know, they don't know any better. So they get in this kind of echo chamber thing, but I think we'd speak to that because that's obviously one of the great values of 20 group is getting in a room with other people where you share your numbers and, and have a chance to get outside that echo chamber and look at how other people are doing business. Doesn't mean you have to do business exactly the way they do it, but at least it can get you some perspective, right? Completely agree. And I'm going to say this, I'm married to a retired accountant uh, slash CPA. Mm-hmm. And one thing I heard her say early on in our marriage that kind of scared me a little bit <laughs> was she told a client on the phone, tell me what you want the number to be and I'll get you there. Wow. Uh, and again, I mean, mm-hmm. I guess to a certain extent, accounting can be that way. Yeah. Point being to that is you have dealers that have heard a number from another dealer because ah. you've been around them too, Jim, that 
I've seen some of the worst financial dealers in the world that will show you some sort of a positive somehow in the way that they calculate a number that nobody else has ever calculated that way, but it does make them look good in a certain area that way. And again, then they're around somebody and they tell somebody, well, this is the number I look at. And then we get them maybe in a 20 group or you get the opportunity to work with them and you go, wait a minute, here are some of the core numbers that pretty much most dealers really look at the larger ones. And you go, this is how you compare to that. So yeah, they do get, and again, I don't think it's intentional. I just think there's some dealers that have looked at something a certain way that has shown a bright light on their business. But when you take a look at the core values of the business, that sometimes that they don't quite match up. So we do get a lot of aha moments with people, especially once first time to 20 groups, um, when they get to see their data in a different format than what they're used to looking at right. and compared to, to other dealers, because we've had them, and I know you've been around them as well, that, that are pretty confident in their business model and their numbers. Then we get them in our book. And for those of you not familiar with the 20 group, left-hand side of the page in a 20 group is good, right-hand side is bad. And all of a sudden they're on the right-hand side of the page and they go, well, wait a minute, how can I be bad? I've been doing this for 35 years and made all this kind of money. So we understand, but this is a different way to take a look at the number and the metrics. So yeah, there are some of those aha moments definitely with them. And again, just when they get around any dealers when you can truly compare kind of like by like numbers um, that you'll find something for them. Yeah, absolutely. The comparative part of that is so important. And and I'll be the one to step out there and, and uh, offend a few of our listeners in that. Um, I, I, I talk about this some just because I think it, it has to be said. And, and so I want to try to make sure I say the, the entire thing, which is I've written in articles in the past where I talk about ego of, of us in our industry. Sometimes that's ego of entrepreneurs. Sometimes it's ego, but in, in our car industry, you know, many of us in that space that part of why, why we've had success, some of us are type A plus individuals, and some of us bring a little bravado and, and ego. And I say ego by itself is not a bad word. So it's what I wrote in the article before is like ego is not such a bad thing. Most of us navigate from some type of ego in almost everything we do every day. It's just that when ego starts to run amok a little bit, it can cloud our business judgment. And I think in buy here, pay here, that's especially dangerous because we have lots of pieces. And typically where we see the ego manifest is on the sales side of things. I'm going to outsell. I'm going to become the biggest operation, you know, my area, whatever. I'm going to outsell the competitors. And so what I, th I hope what people are hearing from us today is that it's not just a sales business. We, we, you know, we'd hope that you would bring that ego to the collection side of your business maybe, and, uh, and, and have a lot of pride in that side as well. But I, I'm just trying to make sure that we say it like, you know, it's part of what our makeup can be as car dealers. You know, if I just put myself in that group for a minute, it's like, that's part of our makeup and that's not a bad thing. It's just, we have to learn how to kind of harness that and, and keep it in check so that we can step out of our echo chamber, we can take the blinders off from our business model and our business approach and go out there and find some help. So, you know, you, you pick up the phone and you call NCM and ask for Brent Carmichael. That's, you know, that's, that's your first call. And, and uh, he'll be, he'll be leading a 20 group somewhere and he'll have to call you back. But, but he basically is, uh, is, is somebody you want to call to get that kind of help. But yeah, I think that's just something I try to just make sure we say when we get a chance to talk about is it. like, I'm not afraid to go out there and say, this is something we need to be mindful of in our space is that ego can put us in a bad place. It can cloud our judgment. Right. Well, and, and you may, I think you'll agree with this. I think we associate success every time with profit. I, I've known dealers that are not in business that were making money. Right. 
right? On their, their financial statement showed profit and they looked at that and kind of beat their chest on, well, my business is making X, mm -hmm. but they couldn't pay their bills. Right, yeah. Right? At that point, or they violated a covenant with their bank and a bank called the note, but they're going, I'm making money. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it, there is some of that to it. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm guilty of that as well. When I when I was a dealer, we were pretty convinced, again, once you get to as many locations as we got to and sold cars like we did, we weren't a benchmark dealer by any stretch of the imagination, but we weren't below average either. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit, I'm going to be honest with you, a chip on my shoulder when I left what I would consider working for a living <laughs> and got on this side and started to truly see what successful dealers were. And yes, 800 cars in a month looks good and the profitability looks good but as i got to go through some metrics of some of these other dealers I'm a true story i called my previous owners and actually apologized to them after about three years with ncm and said i cost you guys hundreds of thousands of dollars hmm. yes we did well the business did well it sold and you guys made a lot of money but i just want you to know I screwed some of this up. Had I known then what right. I know now, this thing sure. could have been much better than what it was. And it's your point exactly. It was just ego. I was members of 20 groups with not only NCM, but another company as well. And we would set meeting rooms and we would be the largest dealer in there. And everybody would talk about how great we were and look at what you guys are doing. And you do, you kind of get a little, you yeah. kind of get a little drunk with that. And you just go, well, what else do we need to do? And then, like I said, being on this side, being around the hundreds of dealers that I've been around, small and large, either one, you know, we can learn just as much from the guy selling 15 or 20 cars a month in some cases, and you can the guys that are selling two and 300 cars. Right. Uh, something that I found out that I wish more dealers would understand is that bigger is not necessarily better. <laughs> and that in some cases, you kind of forget what it took to get big mm -hmm. from the guys that are a little bit smaller, that some of the basic stuff that they do is what is really makes you successful. So, you know, those are the things that really kind of contribute to the dealers that either struggle or have failed is that either they have too much pride or ego, however you want to take a look at that, to either admit that they have a problem or even ask for the help for the problem in the first place. And just right. so, you know, we'll work our way out of this one way or another. Yeah. And most times they've gotten to the point where they can't. Yeah. Okay. And I've seen entrepreneurs that fall into that trap too, where the, and it's not just necessarily our space, but they fall into oh. this trap. Well, I'm going to just work more hours. I'll work 20 more hours a week and I'll be fine. You know, and it's not, it's not really the answer. So I think what I heard you telling your story about calling, you know, the dealership years later is like you, you learned something, you knew something that you didn't know back then. It was just was absent from your, your field of expertise at that time. And so this is, again, this work 20 groups and just getting out there and getting to the conferences and getting educated, which is something Michelle and myself, you know, in our work, we're, we're trying to spread that message to more and more people about, you know, there are resources out there. There are places to get this help. And, and our business in buy here, pay is pretty challenging. It's got some moving parts. And so, you know, there, there are parts of this that are hard to understand. It's, it's hard for people that are, it takes some time for somebody to understand their financial statements in a way to understand how that balance sheet and what it tells you and doesn't tell you. And, you know, there's so, so there's some complexities there. And I think, you know, if people would just acknowledge that they could use some help, that means conferences, that means 20 groups, you know, it means finding some help somewhere. Um, because sometimes asking the person standing next to you in auction lane is not the person because they, they, you know, that's not necessarily the place to go, you know? Well, that's how I learned to buy cars was with guys yeah, standing next yeah, to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, somebody told me just... I'm, 
on this side now and not buying cars for a living now. That's for sure. Yeah. Somebody told me the way to buy cars was just hold your hand up until you own it. That was the that's advice the I got. Just, you yeah. have a lot last one up, you win at that point. Yeah, so. That's right. So yeah, we both got good advice. That's how you own them. But, yeah, same guy, but, same auction, probably. <laughs> probably. Yeah. But uh, uh, a couple of quick things too, I want to touch on is I want to get your perspective on absenteeism. And what you see, like, I'm sure you've seen examples of dealers that are able to move to, maybe it's not full on absenteeism, but we, we know people that are, that own other businesses or buy here, pay or operation may be only one strain of their income and they have investments elsewhere. So they're not, they're not fully invested in their, you know, they're somewhat passive in their, in their buy here, pay or venture. So what's your feeling about what's the key to, to being able to enjoy success in buy here, pay here and be able to transition to a place where you are there uh, less? Well, and that's, I'm going to be honest with you. This is the one that probably, I don't want to say maybe frustrates me or maybe scares me the most, uh, because I do quite a bit of on-site consulting. And I hate to say it, but it is the rule, not the exception to the rule that at the end of this consulting visit, when I sit down with principal owner, dealer principal, management staff, too many times there are things that I find that the owner or dealer principal goes, well, that's not what we do. And I go, yes, it is. This is actually what's happening there. Now, Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not saying you're an owner operator, you need to be in the business 50 hours a week. No. But the challenge part of that is, is spend as much time away, but make sure that you have some sort of process policies in place that you can pick out whatever the four or five most 10 most probably not 10, but at least four or five most important metrics that you want to see on a regular basis and just make sure that you are looking at those on a regular basis. Right. Because um, I'm, like I said, a firm believer. I, you know, my wife had to give me the oh, as soon as we come home from work, it's dinner, no more work kind of thing. Speech after, you know, so many years in the business that I had to kind of let that stuff go uh, as well and try to step out of the business mm-hmm. a lot more and trust the people that work for me. And it's hard for anybody that owns a business to step back because we know that whoever is going to work for us probably doesn't care as much as we do, um, which nobody ever will. Uh, kind of thing. And so it's one of those, you've just got to find what are the most important aspects of the business for you, mm. but then have the discipline to make sure that we're looking on, wouldn't necessarily be a daily basis thing, mm. but every week, and then to make sure that you have actionable items, that if something is not within that realm, that you're making sure that you, that you fix yeah. uh, right away, because too many of them I have seen have, well, I've got a good manager. So then I'm gone for two weeks and then maybe once a month, They'll have the manager present them with some reports. And, the, and I, they ask me, is this a good report? Well, I don't know, Jim, you tell me. Right. What's the most important thing in this business for you? Well, it's cash. Then that's what you need to hold them accountable to. Spend as much time away as you want from the dealership sure. and hold them accountable to what's most important for you. So there is a tough balance with that. I think it's more of a discipline of picking what's most important to you and then make sure that you follow up with it. Management 101. Yeah. I've told the story so many times and it really kind of goes back to that conversation we had earlier about cash flow model versus equity. But I've told the story so many times about a dealer I met when I was a young consultant and I, I just popped into the guy's place and I said, you know, I think I could help you sell more cars. I see your numbers every month through your software report or whatever. And I, I believe I could help you sell more cars. And he said, Jim, I sell 25 cars a month and I don't want to sell 26. You know, so it's like he was settled in his cash flow plan. He was where he wanted to be, put money in his pocket. He was right where he wanted to be. So I think it's just your two points, like the different 
plans work and satisfy what it is that people are wanting. And it's about having the discipline to stay there, you know, keep your eye on it, make sure it stays, you know, where you want to be. So I just think, uh, you know, there's lots of things around that, that we, then the work that we do, we're always trying to help dealers get structured in a way that they're at least able to position themselves to be able to step over and work on the business. That old thing is, you know, step, step aside, like you're talking about. And, and we certainly want to see people be in a position to at least do that and be able to be involved less and less in their business. But uh, yeah, it was just, that's part of just management and growth and structuring the thing. Well, which kind of leads me to something we could probably wrap up on. I'm going to get your thoughts on this. I have shared with dealers over the years and it seemed like this kind of really came to focus for me maybe five years ago. I started sharing with people that, you know, it's been my observation that there are two types of structure that if we can get these, close in our business, we're going to mitigate a big part of the risk that is buy here, pay here. And one of those is the structure of the loan to the consumer, right? We, if we get that loan structured, well, it's, you know, we'll call it smart structure. If we can get it structured well, where it's got a chance for success, then that's going to take care of one piece. And then the other structure for me is how we capitalize the business. So that might be this line of credit we're talking about and leverage, but it's really about how you introduce capital into your business so that if we're disciplined about that and we keep the, the investment, you know, in a smart ratio to the, to the, um, the assets that we're creating, then it's pretty hard to get out of bounds. I mean, if, if we, if we keep those two things, you know, in a pretty healthy uh, range, then we, we, we mitigate to me, some of the biggest risks that we have in the business. And so a lot of these people, I think that fail doesn't mean that you get those things right. You still can't, you know, get off the rails somehow, but I'm just saying, those two things in my mind solve a lot of that. Has that been your experience? Oh, completely agree. hundred percent. The, um, I do an understanding the buy your pay your model webinar. And we talk about the two main things in this business are risk management and capital management. I mean, that, ah, that's good. good. That's Same thing. Period. Now in what order is it one, one, a one or B? I mean, it could be either way to me. I think risk management is first because if I manage the risk first, gives me the ability to be a little bit more aggressive with the capital at that point. Yep. Uh, so I could invest more if my risk is in line. If my capital is in line and my risk is not, it's going to limit my capital at some point. Sure. So I really think that risk management is first. And at one point we had added even compliance management in there with CFPB and everything else that's going on. But I, I learned risk management and capital management uh, was buy here, pay here 101 many, many years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, from a very wise gentleman um, that I, I won't necessarily name now, but, uh, <laughs> but somebody taught me that years ago. And the other thing that, that he taught me, and this was actually one of my owners, was the business. I was not the value of the business. The people that worked for me were the value of the business. So for those that are owner operators out there, if you're wanting to increase the value of your business, believe it or not, you need to empower and, and bring up and train and teach people to do what you do mm -hmm. because if you're going to sell your business and you're not going to be a part of it and you are the day-to-day -day business it will hurt the value of your business sure and it's a hard lesson to learn as an owner is that wait a minute you're going to tell me that if i have a manager that runs the day-to-day -day and i don't do anything day-to-day -day, my business is going to be worth more money that's exactly 100 percent true right unless you plan on staying in the business and working as a general manager under the new owners then yes, if you're going to go away, then all of your knowledge and, and everything that you have goes with you. So if you want to help increase the value of your business, start developing the people underneath you because it makes that business more valuable overall. I totally agree, which is a perfect opportunity for me to say, folks who haven't heard it need to find their way back to those, the three-part series that we did on 
equity, you know, we did on blue sky value. So they need to hear those. Uh, Also, uh, more recently, I've been sharing with people that our sponsor in this Tote the Note podcast series is Neo, which is a really fantastic underwriting tool. So I will tell dealers, I know of no, and I mean this honestly, like I know of no other solution that you could install at the core of your business that could have an impact on the transferable value of your business. Consistency and underwriting would be one of the first things I'd want to look at. If I were coming in to buy somebody's business somewhere, that'd be one of the first things I'd want to know. Portfolio performance and consistency and underwriting. If I buy your business, can I keep doing this underwriting? And can I expect this kind of results in the, because now it's cash flow. Now I can predict the cash flow and have a, so I just think that's important. And, and so we're, we're grateful for our sponsor. Those folks, uh, you know, if you're enjoying the content that we're bringing to you, uh, just know that uh, Neo at Neo Verify is part of how you uh, is part of how we were able to bring this material to you. So, uh, so special thanks to uh, Neo out there. But uh, we can probably let you get uh, back to your work, Brent. I appreciate you making time to join in. And again, uh, I would invite people that Brent's been kind enough to join us on this uh, the hardest questions and buy here, pay here. And uh, so we hope you've been enjoying that. And we would ask you to uh, you know find those other episodes and. Uh, by all means, give us your feedback, like, and subscribe to the YouTube channel and, uh, and let us know, uh, you know, what we can bring next. Thank you so much, Brent. Thanks, Jim. Always, always appreciate the opportunity. You bet. Thanks for joining us. Please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe to Tote the Note. And thanks again to our sponsor, Neo. Find them at neoverify.com. Until next time.